Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by Michael Cohen, former personal attorney to Donald Trump from 2006 to 2018. Michael was also previously a vice president of the Trump Organization, co-president of Trump Entertainment, and a board member of the Eric Trump Foundation. And he served as deputy finance chair of the Republican National Committee in 2017 and 2018. Michael's also got a new book out that I want to talk a little bit about today called Disloyal, a memoir. And don't forget to check out his podcast, Mea Culpa, wherever your fine podcasts are found. Michael Cohen, welcome to the show. Reed, thanks. You forgot one thing. Felon. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we have to call a spade a spade. All right. Yes, I was the executive vice president and special counsel to Donald Trump for more than a decade. I was the vice chair of the RNC Finance Committee, despite being a Democrat and also became personal attorney to the president. However, today I'm also known as 86067. Well, listen, you know, I appreciate your candor and I appreciate you saying that. And so I would say this. I don't often have guests that have federal ID numbers like that, but certainly regardless of that, glad to have you on. You know, obviously, Donald Trump has been out of office now for a couple of months and Do you think that the experience of having served as president of the United States fundamentally changed Trump? I mean, when you think about guys like Clinton or Bush or Obama, they went in with brown hair and they came out with white hair. Donald Trump went in with yellow hair, went out with yellow hair. You know, what a lot of people see in the office is that it just takes so much out of them because there's just this incredible pressure, this incredible crucible of being leader of the free world on a daily basis. Do you think Trump experienced that? So the answer to that is no. First of all, Miss Clarell number two has been on the market for many, many years. So his hair color is not going, (laughs) it's not going to change at all. And as far as who he was as an individual versus who he is today, post-presidency, I've said this quite often, that Donald Trump, when he became president, became the worst version of himself imaginable. And he stayed true to that. All the way to the very end, all the way through January 6th, when they tried to have an insurrection at the Capitol so that he could then change his status from president or soon to be former president to dictator of the United States of America. Nothing about Donald Trump changed other than the fact that he felt the taste of the ultimate power. And that being, of course, the president of the United States of America. And he didn't want to give it up for anything. And not because he didn't want to give up the office of the presidency. He didn't want to give up the office of the dictator of the United States of America. And it's really important to understand that. And that's one thing that we were never surprised by what Trump did post-election. I mean, even going back to last summer, we talked about how this election wouldn't be over on November 3rd. In fact, it wouldn't be over until Joe Biden took the oath of office. 
And one thing that Mary Trump, who was a friend of ours, said that the reason why Trump would be willing to do and say anything was because from his perspective, and Michael, I think you touched on this, given the fact that he was inside a fortress at the White House and protected by men and women who have pledged to give their lives for his, that he feels no personal danger, that he feels that there's no consequence that ultimately is going to come to bear on him. So from his perspective, whether or not it worked out, he was going to be fine personally, he was going to be fine physically. Do you agree with that assessment? That so, I mean, look, he will be protected for life by the United States Secret Service. And so, you know, when it comes to physical threats and damage to his person, you know, short of prosecution for other things and potential incarceration, he is unlikely to be harmed for any of his actions. How do you see that as we go forward now into this new era? Well, let me begin by saying I read Mary Trump's book, and I think it's a very intelligent, psychoanalytic book of Donald Trump. Much of it I absolutely agree with, and I had sadly witnessed it. But I do want to bring your attention to something that you brought up, and that's Donald Trump being protected in the White House. Donald Trump was equally protected at the Trump Organization at 725 Fifth Avenue with people, stupid people like myself, that basically, as you stated, pledged their loyalty, their fealty to Donald Trump in manners and in ways that cost me my freedom. And I don't believe that he had the same protection in Washington. I believe people like Reince Priebus, who was known throughout Washington, especially the inner circle, as rancid penis, along with people like Steve Miller, Jason Miller, Steve Bannon, all of these sycophants, they weren't so much there for Donald Trump as much as they were there for themselves because they saw that Donald Trump is innately stupid and that it's easy to pull the wool over his eyes because they were looking to accomplish something not for the benefit of Donald Trump, like what he had at the Trump Organization, but really for themselves in terms of advancing their careers or their finances through the Washington machine. So do I think that Donald Trump will ultimately face the consequences of his dirty deeds? I certainly hope so, because it would be the first time in his entire lifetime that he is held responsible for his actions, for his own dirty deeds, instead of having somebody else fall on the knife. As far as Secret Service protection, I'm not talking about anybody physically harming him. I'm referring more to the harm that's going to come to him from the multitude of litigation and the multitude of investigations that are now pending into him, into Don Jr., Rudy Giuliani, the Trump Organization, Alan Weisselberg, you know, you name it. I believe that he will ultimately pay the piper. So to that end, it does not appear that his authority within the Republican Party has waned at all. The most activist of activists see him as the head of the party. Kevin McCarthy goes down there and bends the knee. Rick Scott of Florida, National Republican Senatorial Committee chair, bends the knee. All these folks go down there to pay fealty to him as the, I think, both spiritual and titular head of the Republican Party. What is that meeting like? How does Trump act in those things? First of all, I, I'm going to disagree with you on that notion that he is still as relevant as he was when he was either president-elect 
president or even directly after his post-presidency. I do believe that enough Americans saw the real Donald Trump come January 6th, the day of the insurrection, and the way that he went running and cowering into the White House in order to ensure not only his safety, but to be able to watch these masses storming the Capitol wearing paramilitary gear, carrying MAGA flags and Trump 2020 flags and so on. I believe a lot of people lost respect for him. Now, I'm not talking about his hardcore MAGA base. I'm talking about others that constitute part of the 74 million people that voted for him. Now, as far as the Kevin McCarthy's and the others that come there to pay homage. First of all, I think they're coming there for a free meal. That's what I truly believe. I don't believe that they think much of Donald Trump. They never did. People like Ted Cruz, who basically called Trump out after we put in that ad, so to speak, in the National Enquirer, that Ted Cruz's father was involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy, along with Donald Trump's attacks on Ted Cruz's wife's looks. I don't believe that they have respect for him, but they do acknowledge that he still controls enough individuals that constitute his base to make their re-election difficult. Not impossible, but certainly more difficult. And they're all in it for themselves, too. So when people turn around and say that Donald Trump was all in it for himself, yes, that's a fact. But so is Ted Cruz. So is Josh Hawley. So is Ron Johnson, they're all in it for themselves. And they're just afraid that Trump will start, if he had his Twitter, making negative statements about them, which could cost them their position. So they would rather trade American democracy for their job. And if paying homage to Donald Trump is one of the so-called negatives to it, well, as long as they can get a free Mar-a-Lago burger out of it, they're all in. So, Michael, tell me a little bit about what you're going through, not only your interactions with the federal justice system, but also with your book, Disloyal. What was the genesis of that? And what do you hope folks will learn by reading it? So the book actually came out several months ago, and it sat for several weeks as the number one New York Times bestseller. It's doing fantastic. But when I was writing the book, first of all, it was very difficult because I was writing it in prison. And the only way to write it is on long yellow legal pad that you get from the commissary with pens that are really inferior, considering when you're about a third of the way through, the pen somehow constantly runs out of ink. So it was originally written in longhand. I would then get the documents to my wife that would give it to an individual who was putting the book together for me in terms of word processing and you know wordsmithing it for me. And one of the things that happened, and it's actually a very funny story, was around the time of Passover. I knew I was going to the shoe because of a situation with another inmate there. And I didn't know what to do because the manuscript was about, at the time, maybe 280 pages long. And my biggest fear was that the manuscript would get into the hands of one of the correctional officers because most of them were Trump supporters. I never understood it, but it's true. Most of them were. And, Michael, what's the shoe? The shoe is the segregated housing unit. That's where you go when there's an issue. It's a horrible place. And what I did is I took the manuscript, and it was okay. I probably lost about a week worth of editing to the document. That was the one that was already 
computerized as opposed to in longhand. And I threw it into the pit that you burn the bread, the chumitz in. And I got into trouble with that also with the rabbi. He was like, you know, that's not what it's for. And I was like, hey, listen, if you want to get it, you know, stick your hand in. I'm not putting it because that fire was about 11 feet high. And they were afraid it was going to cause one of the trees with the overhanging branches to catch fire. But I was really, truly afraid that somebody was going to get their hands on the manuscript, send it into D.C., and that would have prevented the book from coming out. Mea Culpa as a podcast is sort of an extension of the book Disloyal, whereby we talk about not just what exists in the book using those type of examples, but really comparing it to what's happening today both in the political and social scene, and relating it back to my experiences, whether it was working for more than a decade for Donald Trump, to my time in prison, to my time here on home confinement, after, of course, being remanded back to prison, because I refused to allow the government to interfere with my First Amendment right and not publish the book. So, as you're thinking through the book and you go through your podcast episode by episode, is what you're seeing now from Trump and his current group, what you saw from the campaign last year, and this is behavior, the legal issues they have, the financial stuff they've done, whether or not it was Kushner-controlled companies sucking $700 million out of the campaign and basically leaving them penniless when they needed the money. Now you see that there was about $120 million they raised from unwitting donors who were signed up as, you know, recurring donors, even though they'd never agreed to that. So I guess my question for you, Michael, is I don't know what the state of the Trump organization is, but does Trump and his inner circle just see politics now as the latest way just to churn money through a cash register? You mean to grift? And the answer to that is yes. I've been calling him the grifter in chief for quite some time now. It's really sad, you know, that Somebody who's willing to give you their money because they believe in you now becomes a person who has to be reimbursed because you put a little check mark at the bottom that if you didn't want to be a recurring donor, that you have to unclick it. I mean, it's just exactly backwards. And it's why when I was before the House Oversight Committee, before the late Honorable Elijah Cummings, I said Donald Trump is a fraud. He's a con man. And that's exactly what he is. And by the way, so is Jared Kushner. So are all of the others that were around him. This was all supposed to be nothing more than the greatest infomercial in the history of American politics. And like some of these movies, I think it was called Dave or something like that, where he ultimately becomes the president. Nobody expected Trump to win, including Donald Trump. And the whole thing was all about rebuilding the Trump brand because the Trump brand had unfortunately devolved from what was considered at one time a five-star glamorous living style to really living in a dumpster where everything that he touched turned to shit. I mean, let's talk about him. Trump vodka. Seriously? Trump steaks. Huh? Trump University. Really? The only person that really graduated, of course, magna cum laude and valedictorian was Donald Trump from his own university that he ended up having to pay like $28 million in fines. Right? You can go on and on with this. The RCN, you know, with his uh, multi-level marketing bullshit or his Trump mortgage that during the best mortgage time in U.S. history, or at least in the last hundred years, 
The most that they did was $9 million, and they ended up stiffing a mother, a single mom, of like thirty dollars or $40,000. You can go on and on about all of the failed Trump-related projects. Why? Because it's all a con. All you had to do is dangle a dollar in front of his nose, and the guy was running like a donkey following a carrot. So let me ask you this. I mean, you mentioned both Trump and Kushner. One of the things I was most struck by last year was how clear Trump seemed to be in his understanding of just how dangerous COVID-19 could be in the recording that Bob Woodward made for his book. It was a level of clarity of thought and of speech that you don't hear from him. So what is Trump intellectually? Did he really know what it was and he made the conscious decision to just make it politics and about himself? Or did he just never have an understanding? Did Kushner never have an understanding? Was it incompetence? Was it being bad people? How did we get to 500,000 dead Americans on this guy's watch? Well, this is a complete bungling of Trump and his administration. Donald Trump is not dumb. He may be illiterate. He doesn't read. So he's not a historian. He doesn't understand government. He didn't want to understand government. Government was going to be what his gut was telling him to do, because that's what he always, in his mind, relied upon, was his intuition. But he's not stupid. And what he certainly understood were comments that were told to him by his coronavirus task force, specifically Dr. Anthony Fauci, an epidemiologist extraordinaire. And this man came straight out and told him, Mr. President, if we don't get our hospitalizations under 10,000 by a certain date, we're going to have a very ugly winter. And what did Donald Trump do? He stuck his middle finger right into Fauci's face, spit into the eye of this coronavirus, and he said, I don't care. I don't care about the American people. All I care about is my reelection and the adulation that people give to me when I go to these big giant rallies, these super spreader events, because it's I don't care whatever happens to you. Why do I give a shit? All I care about is my reelection. And that's why you now have 560,000 dead Americans, 560,000 empty chairs at family functions during the course of this year and continuing. And everyone says, yeah, but now it's under Joe Biden. Donald Trump created a path that even if Joe Biden, who I think is doing a phenomenal job in getting the inoculation into the arms of America, you cannot stop what is already there. And one of the ways that Trump did this is he ignored the simplest of rules. And this is why I say he's ignorant and he's arrogant. Instead of listening to somebody with the intelligence of Dr. Fauci, what he did is he said, I'm going to go the exact opposite. And where I say he's stupid is the fact that he even bragged about it to Woodward on tape, which really shows how stupid, what a moron the guy actually is. But all he needed to do is to continue to promote three simple things. Keep your hands clean, safe social distance, and wear a mask. Instead, what did Trump do? Now, he always kept his hands clean, right? I mean, that's because he's a germaphobe. So I give him that check mark. But wearing a mask, safe social distancing, to the contrary. He actually told people within his group, if you wear a mask, I don't want you anywhere near me. So he promoted the unsafe way of dealing 
with the pandemic, the exact opposite of what he was warned by Dr. Fauci. And that, again, makes him the dumbest human being on the planet. And worse than that, a part of these 74 million people that supported him that showed up to these super spreader events. You know, people forget the fact that not only did Donald's fat ass get drawn and taken to Walter Reed Hospital, but Melania got sick and the kids got sick and his cabinet got sick and his administration got sick and his supporters got sick. But Donald Trump doesn't care. He doesn't care because he's sick. He's sick in his head, he lacks empathy, and he just doesn't care about anyone or anything other than himself. So, Michael, switching to the current day, what does Donald Trump do for the next two years? And let me ask you the $64,000 question. Does he run for president again? All right. So let me say, I don't really care what Donald Trump does from yesterday all the way till the end of time. I don't give a rat's ass. One thing I can tell you is he's going to become very, very busy. And he's going to be busy defending a slew of litigation that is going to be coming from all corners of this country against him, against his company, against members of his company like Alan Weisselberg and others. He's going to be defending litigation for a long, long time, which, of course, now brings me to the question of 2024. Do I think that Donald Trump is going to run? So for all of your listeners, I hope that this makes you happy that There is not a chance in the world that Donald Trump is going to be running in 2024, because I truly believe that the litigation that he is going to be facing, including the likes of Cyrus Vance, our New York district attorney, now who brought on Mark Pomerantz, who is a lawyer extraordinaire, along with Tish James, our New York attorney general, who's got her own case pending now. You also have Georgia. You have the District of Columbia with the Presidential Inaugural Committee. I believe that they're all going to be so engrossed in litigation that there is no chance in the world that they're going to run. And I believe that they are guilty of the charges being brought against them. It's not for me to say whether they are guilty or not. It's just, it's my belief. I believe that they are guilty. And I'm certain that when you bring in, if you're Cyrus Vance and you bring in the likes of a Mark Pomerantz, if I was Donald Trump, I would be nervous. So let me ask you this. And I agree with you that all these Republicans are in it for themselves and they hew only to the Trump line because he can make their life harder, whether or not it's with local activists or fundraising or bad PR. So how long do these guys hang out and wait for Trump to say that he's not running? These guys are stuck in his wake. I mean, when do they move past him? When he gets indicted, or if in fact he gets indicted, whether it's by the district attorney, the attorney general, or any of the other plethora of states that are looking to bring charges against him, at what point in time did the Josh Hawley's, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Ron Johnson's, when do they turn around and say, listen, Donald Trump now no longer has any power. Yeah, he'll still have his MAGA warriors, the same guys that want to wear the paramilitary outfits and run around and, you know, pretend to be Trump tough guys. He loses all strength politically when this happens and it will happen. Now, does it happen tomorrow? Probably not. Does it happen in a month from now, two months from now? Probably yes. It certainly is going to happen well before the midterm elections. So Donald Trump's relevance, as we have already seen so far, 
is dwindling by the day. And you know this because even the head of the Proud Boys has now walked away from Trump. And the question then is, why are they walking away from him? Because what they're seeing is that the guy who they thought was there for them, that he was one of them, is already throwing them under the bus, that they are not protected, despite the fact that it was Donald Trump's call to arms. And not just Don Trump, Don Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and others that promoted the insurrection on January 6th. And now they're all sitting there, oh, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Donald Trump told us that we were welcome in the Capitol, right? Yeah, maybe you were, but you weren't welcome in the Capitol with a pipe bomb, you idiot, or with bear spray or zip ties or knives, right? You know what you were there for, and you weren't there in order to peacefully demonstrate. You stormed the Capitol. You desecrated a government building that stands for our democracy. And now they're trying to say, yeah, but our president told us to go there. And he's saying, well, well, who? I never said it. And that's the problem. That's the problem with Trump. Because again, it goes right back to the same underlying fact that Donald Trump doesn't give a shit about anyone or anything other than himself. And he will only do what's good for him and not for anybody else, no matter what you do for him. The way Donald Trump thinks is, okay, that was yesterday you did that for me. What did you do for me today? If Trump doesn't run again, but he's still around until he has to contend with his personal legal issues, has he opened a Pandora's box in American politics that is his legacy that we will be hard-pressed to put back in? Yeah, I think Trumpism is a very serious problem right now in this country. My biggest fear is not Donald Trump coming back in 2024, making the claim that he's running for president. Look, he lost in 2020 because he sucked as a president and everybody knows it. He's not going to be running in 2024, but what he did is he opened up an ideology that's really predicated on nationalism, on hate, and it's very dangerous for this country. And here's what I talk about a lot. What happens when a richer Donald Trump, a smarter Donald Trump, a more sinister and a more organized Donald Trump appears? We'll call him Donald Trump 2.0. He's everything that Donald Trump 1.0 is not, but just richer, smarter, and more sinister. What happens when that individual decides to take this new Trumpism playbook and runs with it? That's where we're going to have some real serious problems in this country. And that I'm more afraid of than Donald Trump's bullshit announcement that I'm going to run in 2024, or having his idiotic daughter-in-law, Lara Trump, on Fox or one of these other pro-Trump disgraceful stations sit there and say, but so many people are so excited for your announcement in 2024 for you to become president again. You sit there, you're <laughs> like, do I vomit now or later? Well, you know, certainly that's one thing that we've, we worry about as well is that some of our folks believe that Trump, if he were to announce today, would be the presumptive nominee. Others believe that it doesn't matter one way or the other. But, you know, as Rick Wilson, one of our co-founders likes to say, the biggest fear he has is that, to your point, Michael, that someone's going to run Trumpism through the car wash and say, no, it's not really that bad. Look how shiny and clean it is. But it maintains under a innocuous looking facade the ugliness that Trump sort of unleashed on us. And then if, in fact, that happens, the Lincoln Project, and I'm going to give you a lot of kudos, some of your ads were some of the hardest hitting ads that I've ever seen, truthful and biting 
to say the least. They were quick response to things that he was doing. And God knows that you had to be, you know, right on it, Johnny on the spot, because every single day under Donald Trump's presidency was chaotic. And that's why I always refer to him as Captain Chaos. So you have to constantly be on your toes, ready to respond to one of his stupid statements with an ad. And you guys did it brilliantly. So if, in fact, that he decided to announce that he was going to run, and if, in fact, he became, which I don't think he would, the presumptive nominee, I believe that the Lincoln Project would have to put back on you know, it's boxing gloves. And I think you'd have to step into the ring again for the rematch. And it wouldn't just be the Lincoln Project. It would be people like myself, people like Anthony Scaramucci, people like, you know, Amorosa or Stephanie Winston Walkoff, or as you said, Rick Wilson, who I had on Maya Culpa. It would be all of these individuals, myself included, that would have to go back out and continue to impress upon the citizenry of this country that Donald Trump is not just wrong for America, he's wrong for the world. When you start to see our allies become our adversaries, and then our adversaries become our allies, you better really look deep into yourself as to whether or not America is going to be the America that we all want it to be, that we know it to be, the leader of the free world, or are we going to be some sort of nationalistic Racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic country. That's the choice that you have. And I don't know which way people will go with, but my presumption is that they're not going with Donald Trump. Well, Michael, I couldn't have said that better myself. And certainly I think everyone here at the Lincoln Project agrees with you. And we're working hard every day to make sure that we do not go down that path. But before I let you go... Tell me what it is that you're working on and how can we find you online? So right now I'm on home confinement and I made the press again yesterday. I seem to take the press on a daily basis. What I did is I filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus. And the purpose of that writ is to force the government to adhere to the one and only bipartisan agreement that came out of the Trump administration, and that is on prison reform. And under the First Step Act, all federal eligible inmates are able to earn time credit off of their sentence based upon what's called productive activity as well as programming credits. Now, what I did is I accumulated over my time there at FCI Otisville I accumulated over 700 hours, but yet to date, and that's again since the signing of this bill by Trump and Bill Barr, that was December of 2018, the Bureau of Prisons has failed to figure out a formula on how many hours equals how many days. Now, using, for example, the RDAP system, which is the Residential Drug Alcohol Prevention Program, 500 hours equals up to one year. So as I wrote to them and asked, well, then what is 700 hours? Well, they've denied my petition. The government actually came in and they opposed it on three defenses. And one of the things that I hope to accomplish by putting my reply papers to their opposition to my petition, my hope is that my habeas will become something that all eligible federal inmates, and that doesn't mean every federal inmate, 
It just means all those that are eligible will be able to be returned to their families, to their friends, to their society, to the community, which is exactly what the BOP talks about, that this is what they want to do. They're full of shit, and they just don't want to release anyone. All they keep doing is incarcerating and incarcerating. We incarcerate people in this country like no other country in the world. We're the only ones that have this mass incarceration policy. So one of the things that I'm doing besides for writing another book now about the Department of Injustice, I have the podcast, as you know, I'm working actually on a movie. My book, Disloyal, is actually being adapted into a full-length film. So I'm working on that. I'm also working on trying to change prison reform in this country so that, again, people who are eligible to be released so that they can go home to their families like I am right now, even though I'm on home confinement and confined to my home for 22 hours a day, I would like to see these people return to their families as well. And then that would just be the beginning of prison reform. Well, I think that's probably a discussion for an entire episode. Michael, are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. It's um, Michael Cohen 212 And I also have myself on Instagram. It helps to keep me busy. Listen, when you have 22 (laughs) hours a day and you're somebody that doesn't sleep too many hours, you got to find ways of keeping yourself busy. And I'm trying as hard as I can. But right now, my primary goal is this prison reform and getting it in the eyes, the ears, and in the hands of politicians to help to make these necessary changes. Well, Michael, we'll certainly keep track of that. But for now, everyone, make sure to pick up a copy of Michael's memoir, Disloyal. Check out his podcast, Mea Culpa, wherever your favorite podcasts are found. You can find me on Twitter, at Reed Galen. And until the next episode, thanks so much. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.